Nikawa napiga picha ya ID hawa smile nikubaya Welcome to the development dilemma This episode comes from my discussion with two brilliant individuals and Africans Shira Washira and Puti Tati We're both in the US studying at the University of Stanford And so in this they speak from their experience as well as from years of working in development organizations in Kenya and South Africa. It was such a great discussion that I decided to split it into two parts. So in this first part, we talk about the inferiority complex that they had that drove them to go to a place like Stanford in the first place, and upon arrival, their disappointment with what they found at this quote-unquote world-leading institute. We also dive into their challenges with deciding what responsibility and role they should have in correcting some of the failures of institutions like Stanford as well as development organizations they've worked at. And throughout this you hear this powerful at times painful tension in in where they see themselves and their responsibility to this issue that they care deeply about and yet have frustrations of how to get past it and how to just live their own lives as individuals. As always this podcast is listener supported. So please make sure to share, subscribe and follow on Instagram or Twitter to be able to see the latest posts and updates of events. So without further ado, here is the first part. Great to have you both here, Shiro and Puti. And Love to start the conversation just by getting a little bit of your backgrounds and where we're situated. <laughs> so my name is Puti Tati. I am currently a first-year electrical engineering student up here at Stanford. I did my undergrad electrical engineering, then worked in management consulting for three years. Did both of those in South Africa, so did my undergrad down in Cape Town, and then moved to PCG Johannesburg and was there for three years, and then worked at a energy investment firm called Cross Boundary Energy out in Nairobi for a year before coming to Stanford. And I'm Shira, also a first year master's student here at Stanford. Um originally from Nairobi, Kenya, but I've lived in the US for I guess this is year 6 now, not continuously. So, I did my undergraduate at the University of Chicago, lived in New York for a year, then moved back home to be in the social enterprise/nonprofit space. initially with one acre fund and then with give directly so bring a different perspective from putty in terms of humanities brain versus more scientific brain and studying international policy now i'd love to start there with what you guys are studying and particular your experiences of coming to stanford as a space for teaching yeah so i think what i found really interesting about my time here at stanford is some of the preconceptions that people have i think about South Africa and Africa in general starting from the very typical things which is oh you're from South Africa do you know John from Kenya <laughs> you're like no no I really don't but there's some of the more interesting contrasting things so i think one of the things that excited me a little bit about being at Stanford was the the idea about being close to entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley and to see what's so different about Stanford versus undergrad university and i was actually quietly disappointed in the sense that I realized that I actually played into like an inferiority complex in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. As soon as I finished my undergrad, I knew I really wanted to focus on energy in Africa. My heart's here. This is what I want to do. I want to sort of 
think about how are the ways that we can decrease the barriers to accessing electricity, both from a residential perspective, but also from a small business perspective, which is like a huge pain point. So a lot of my work is actually going to be here. And I had the chance to work for an energy investment firm where I was actually having quite a bit of fun. And I was doing exactly what I wanted to do and felt like, okay, right now I'm actually kind of settling into the space that I want to be in. But I had this offer from Stanford and I felt the compulsion that if I did not go, I would regret it. How can I hope to sort of be at the same level as some of my colleagues if I don't have that Stanford degree as that stamp validation? And these um, colleagues, where do they come from? And did they have the same stamp? So yeah, so a lot of these colleagues do have the same stamp. So a lot of them were came from like Wharton Business School or Stanford GSB, especially if you look at the sort of senior players. Almost if you look at all of these, you sort of think to yourself, well, wow, I mean, if they're there's some secret sauce that these guys must have when they go to these places that clearly I'm missing. And now that I'm here, I'm like, I really don't think there is <laughs> some weird secret sauce more than it is sort of like this construct that we have around. If you've gone to this prestigious school, there must be something that you know that others don't. I look at a lot of my classmates and I'm like, I am certain that I know like at least 40% of the people that I've interacted with at UCT who are just as smart, if not smarter, mm -hmm. you know, but someone else from the outside might look at someone from UCT and look at Stanford and be like, oh, wow, these must be such different like individuals. So I think that's just been really interesting for me in terms of just looking into that inferiority complex and something that like Shira and I have talked about. A lot of that really resonates with me. And I think one of the points of difference between our backgrounds is that I also did have a, a sort of similar experience as an undergraduate at the University of Chicago. And that was really interesting because it did expose me to sort of this insecurity of having to constantly prove yourself and prove that you bring value and intelligence to the table. I would get some really shocking questions given that this is supposed to be a top academic institution when I was an undergraduate and I always felt like what would entitle me to criticize these types of institutions is not just getting in but doing exceptionally well there mm -hmm. so that people couldn't tell you that you didn't like it because you didn't do well there yeah. and dismiss and dismiss uh -huh. exactly dismiss the validity of your experience and it's like an extra weight you carry I'm 18 years old I've just gotten here and I'm hyper conscious of the fact that I need to do well socially I need to do well professionally and I need to do well academically And so you think that they'll get to, you'll get to a certain point where you have enough stamps. So I say this not to brag, but to like underscore the point. So I did end up graduating with um, a designation awarded to the top 10% of your graduating class from your Chicago. And you think that at a certain point, you've earned the right to criticize certain types of power, speak truth to certain types of power. And so I was quite shocked when I went back home and I found that I still had to keep proving and reproving myself and seeing situations where people with shockingly similar CVs would have an easier time getting their foot into the door. And they were different to you how? that they had American passports. And in most cases, they were white people with American passports. So I'd see younger people than me who went to very similar institutions, who had similar degree backgrounds, get more interviews, be hired more senior than I was in the same organization. And you're sort of like, what's going on? And maybe I just need to keep accumulating stamps. So you work extra hard, you get promoted faster. And then I got to a point where I sort of was running out of steam and I wanted to take a break. I want to be careful not to speak for all Africans, but I also do know <laughs> that these experiences resonate with a lot of people. 
and so you sort of put aside like what's the best program for me to go to and you start asking where will I reap the rewards when I move back more and something Putty said to me in our first quarter when I was particularly frustrated by some conversation where I felt patronized was sometimes I think we have to accept that there's a certain audience that's never going to be ready to take us seriously and so what we need to do is change our audience and change who we're requesting validation from and so it's hard to do when you're in the development space or when you're in spaces like entrepreneurship where you're interfacing constantly with people who will question your worth as an African or constantly question the value that's coming out of the continent. It's hard to change your audience, but I think that's sort of what I've been working on now and how I'm framing this experience is how can I start looking for validation from elsewhere. One of the really interesting courses I did here was just related to like this idea about systems thinking. And one of the things that I think has just really stuck with me is this point around narrative and the basic idea is that in any sort of systems there's three layers that you'll see so you'll see the actual outputs of the system itself and that's typically driven by relationships that result in those specific outputs but driving those relationships is narratives Mm -hmm. a simple example might be like the Stanford. (laughs) The narrative is if you go to Stanford, you must be smart in some way. Mm -hmm. And as a result, some smart person looks at me and says, well, he must be smart so I can engage with this guy. And as a result of that outcome, I might have a stronger network, but it's all driven by this one underlying narrative. And so I think that like a lot of what we need to start doing, particularly as Africans, is challenging like what are the underlying narratives that Mm -hmm. drive our decisions Mm -hmm. and like assessing the validity of those. I think that sometimes we almost have these like unquestioned narratives that are actually just not true (laughs) my experience at stanford right which is that like i thought i'd come here and find some secret sauce because there must be some secret sauce like you look at the output of the system (laughs) and you're like that narrative must be true right but i don't think there really is one thing that comes out of what you both are saying and particularly earlier things you were mentioning was this notion that there is one model of success and Mm -hmm. it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because Mm -hmm. to some extent ironically you're both sat here Mm -hmm. Fulfilling that prophecy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, exactly. Yeah. And as you mentioned with systems, is that who do these systems benefit? And right. these systems mm. are not designed to primarily benefit you. Yeah. They're designed to benefit the American passport holder who yeah. can go into any place in the world with those stamps yeah. and get credibility. And yeah. even if you follow those stamps, you don't get the same credibility. Yeah. So I like that notion, Puti, of mm. having to find your own audience, having to change that, because you're never going to win mm-hmm. in their game. Yeah. 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 And that sort of, I feel like that was sort of the reflection that for me made the Toni Morrison quote I shared with you so poignant. And and so I'll share the quote again, but the quote goes, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says that your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says that you have no kingdom, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. And that always hits, like I get chills every time I read that quote. And I've been shocked by the number of times I've come back to it while I've been 
here because you sort of hit a wall you're so frustrated with how things are being depicted how you're being spoken to and sort of tie this in together like to put his point around you think that there's a secret sauce and then you come and you're so disappointed by the lack of rigor when it comes to certain topics and mm-hmm. you know the way I describe it is a learned helplessness you see syllabi that try to address Africa just be laughably bad mm. what might be an example so yeah we are speaking of one of the top universities in the world right situated in a place that would consider itself very liberal very right. progressive right, right, right. and yet you're facing these challenges what might be an example an example that comes to mind recently is we were i mean a, a sort of like case study based course where one of the topics was thinking about how to navigate post-conflict settings and thinking about the role of the international community and the case we were looking at was the rwandan genocide and the text that was chosen to work off was the memoirs of uh, General Dallaire, who was the commander of the UN peacekeeping troops at the time. Now, there's been so much work written on the Rwanda genocide. This particular, this particular piece was very exotifying of Rwanda. And the general was from where? He's a white French-Canadian man. It was a very ego-driven piece. And I think at the core of it was an issue that it was disrespectful. And it was a product of its time. I think he describes Rwanda at some point as a Garden of Eden when he first got there. There's someone who gets described as a staunchy African. And... There was a little bit of lip service in discussion paid to that. The first 10 minutes of discussion in class was how hard it must have been for this general to witness the genocide, which for anyone from East Africa, and can you imagine if there's a Rwandan in that class at my age? Yeah, I was born in 94. So this is someone for whom the genocide would have been deeply personal. And what it does is it robs African students in that context of the opportunity to learn about what the takeaway of the lesson was actually supposed to be. Because all I'm thinking about is how much more nuanced a piece on, for instance, Kosovo would have been. And it's not a sort of fictitious counterexample. It's because I've read nuanced pieces. In other case studies, we use case studies that were commissioned and written by students and or by researchers. And so taking a range of perspectives and treat the topic with nuance and, and subtlety that it deserves. And so I'm there fuming about how poorly Africa is represented and thinking about how to intervene and reaching out to my networks to be like, what are the top three books or papers you'd recommend on the Rwandan genocide so that I can recommend that to my professor and do the work of curriculum design? Because if I give the feedback without actionable solutions, I'm just complaining. I'm just a bitter African and I'm, I'm not being practical or solutions oriented. And to be clear, this is not a Stanford-specific issue. This is an issue with elite, predominantly white institutions all across the U.S. But at the same time, like when we're back on the continent, these continue to be the stamps that we're most valued for. So it feels hard and not not impossible because there are people who show us different pathways. And I think the more people show us different pathways and when we're in positions of power and we make different decisions about who we hire, who we fund, we wouldn't feel as obligated to put up with it. But over the break, sometimes I had the thought, like, should I come back to Stanford and I'd sort of like wrap up those reflections with, well, I don't think black Stanford dropouts do as well as the white. <laughs> yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. It's sad to, to hear that you felt and had to question if you wanted to come back. I yeah. Think that's, that's just sad um, and it shouldn't be your experience. Hmm. 
No, very true. And I've definitely had... I mean, I remember when I got back on the plane and I was like, no! <laughs> oh, man! <laughs> um, and there's so many examples like that. I've had meetings with senior directors of the institute where my program is housed. No asking questions about and trying to offer suggestions for ways to increase African diversity. That's not my job. I don't get the same right as a white student from Connecticut who can just be and just enjoy all the resources that Stanford has to offer. But I've been thinking a lot about that point because I think in some ways, like, you're right, that it's very frustrating that the work falls on us Mm -hmm. to begin to change these places. But in a lot of ways, it's better that it does because I feel like we need... It allows us to control the narrative. That's fair. Like, if uh, like if I think about that exact same situation, I don't know if I would have wanted, mm. you know, the professor to be like, okay, Shiro, thank you for your comments. Like, go live. And then he does something else. And it's just like, you come, you come back next year, and you're like, this is just as problematic. And I feel like that's the problem. Is like, in a lot of ways, I, there's like this... <laughs> like blindness, this privileged blindness that sometimes people just aren't even aware that they're mm-hmm. like privy to. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it takes someone who's, who sees it from mm-hmm. the outside being able to like pop that bubble yeah. and show them how things need to change. But I do agree that like, it's unfortunately a very like burdensome responsibility. Anything worth fighting for will come with it comes with blood, right? It comes with a bit of pain. And I think that, unfortunately, I think this is just probably one of those things where it's annoying, but even I, uh, you know, like BCG, all the recruiting stuff was mostly done by black individuals mm-hmm. because most of us are first or second generation in terms of having parents who were able to actually, like, pay for their housing in, su- in suburbs and actually mm-hmm. went to university and be able to get middle income paying jobs mm-hmm. and so I look at the life of like my cousins I look at the life of my mm-hmm. grand and a whole bunch of people mm-hmm. and there's just certain insights that I have in terms of how they've lived mm-hmm. that someone who's white and they're like fifth generation university yeah. students probably just doesn't have yeah. and unfortunately it does mean that you know I'm doing my consulting job and then I'm educating the recruiting team on hey here's how we should be thinking yeah. about <laughs> yeah. you know diversity yeah. you're right like it means we're doing twice as much work right um which unfortunately is just one of those burdens that I think we have to bear in order to actually see the change. Yeah. Would be great though if we got compensated for it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm yeah. sure I'm curious then on that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that the fatigue that comes from that kind of work, mm-hmm. how much does it stem from having to be asked and having to carry that burden mm-hmm. versus having felt like it didn't go somewhere or it wasn't positioned the right way? Is there mm-hmm. a way to do that? Mm-hmm. If someone were thinking, I know I'm doing this poorly, yeah. I know I'm ignorant. How would I best structure or engage someone? First, I think compensate them. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really good question. And I think Putty brings up a lot of very good points. We do want to sit at the table and ultimately, like we can circle back to this. I definitely can imagine folks who would hear us complain about this and be like, woe is you Stanford students. (laughs) I'm very self-aware of that. And so, yeah, I do agree that it's better that we have a seat at the table than we don't. I think it is extremely draining to continually have to do the work. And I think to your question, what makes it draining is when it feels like it's a checkbox that people can then feel Mm. good about hitting and they don't actually have the intention to take you seriously. Mm. And that's a frustration I felt because... So when I first uh, moved back home to Kenya, my role was not 
internal focus it had nothing to do with diversity or inclusion i just found myself spending a lot of time on top of my actual job that i was getting compensated for doing this type of work and so then i uh, positioned myself to transfer to a different role and team so that at least i was sort of like being paid to do the work and so i think part of it is just like it is extremely tiring work if you're doing it all the time but what i did find is that there are folks who sort of come to you wanting to extract your stories almost Mm -hmm. like they want you to share your trauma and reveal your trauma and they've done the good work of allyship by listening and being Mm -hmm. sad about it but those stories and that experience and that feedback isn't reflected in how they continue to make decisions about the program and it's back to this idea of like learned helplessness where i've had extremely smart supervisors both like in formal jobs and in a sort of like contract gigs or listen to my feedback about a lack of diversity within an organization or like listen to a synthesis of feedback from a range of staff and come back and say i just don't know how to change it you know especially with something like recruitment people are like we just don't have the networks and i'm just like we would never accept a response like that Mm. on so many other problems your business would face Mm. but you sort of treat this as an impossible and surmountable task and i think that's where it gets very frustrating something i began to feel as i was leaving kenya and coming back to school was I just don't know how many of my expatriate co-workers are capable of viewing me as a peer rather than yet another subject that they've come to Kenya to help. You know, I've had colleagues tell me, people like you deserve every opportunity and I want to help you and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I am just as qualified as you. I could be your mentor. And it's very frustrating to have that sort of sense of like, this constant and equal footing and and you're sort of always fighting to be seen as someone whose ideas can be taken seriously and incorporated into the project plan so i think that's when it gets frustrating that said i have also worked at organizations that do create a lot of space for people to seriously participate in the conversation and one of the organizations i was at I wouldn't mince my words at all. Like, basically, how I'm talking to you is how I talk to my most, my boss's boss's boss and sort of be very candid. Like, these are the racial diversity problems you have. I think that when you unpack this, it just comes down to pure racism. And I do think that that pr- creates relief in some ways where at least you can be honest about the problem. And even if sometimes there's sort of a little bit of that learned helplessness with thinking about the solutions, like when people let you sort of talk honestly about it and then actually want to incorporate that in a serious way into the action plan, like that, I think it can mm. be energizing. And mm. to take that, mm-hmm. both organizations mm-hmm. on the face of it yeah. might have sounded equally committed right. to these mm-hmm. ideas. Right. So what was it that the latter was actually doing mm-hmm. that made it different? Yeah, right. So to that, like I can speak to, I think it's interesting because I think like I agree, and I think it's, but then I think it's also a second part, which is yeah. it's easy to set up the way to do things, but following through on that execution yeah. sometimes mm-hmm. is important. The, the people that I've trusted the most in terms of like leading these efforts are the people who are able to treat you know diverse candidates treat them equally even when it doesn't benefit them mm-hmm. and so the example that for instance comes to mind is one of my organizations they came up with like this really really great plan so they basically treated almost as if it was like 
a full project. They had like frameworks, they had, mm -hmm. you know, the works, this is what we're committing to. And every single month we're gonna come back to you and, and show you like, mm -hmm. hey, this is how much progress we've made, mm -hmm. which was great. And I was like super bought into this until you look around at some of the stuff who don't necessarily affect the direct line of business so that might be like support staff mm -hmm. and these types of people yeah and like when you look at how they treat them and how they think about them then you realize that actually as much as they're saying this it's because yeah. in some ways they're like okay i get some business benefit out of this i get more up on yeah. these guys yeah. and then you begin to question the validity of that actual commitment right. to diversity right and that for me was probably one of like the most draining moments that i had yeah. where i was just like I just can't. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that yeah. comes back to this point about paternalism because I think mm -hmm. they sort of this like there's a a feel good story that sometimes I think expatriates want to tell about their experience in Kenya of skills transfer, mm -hmm. mentorship, of mm -hmm. growing someone. And it's not to say that those things can't happen in like a valid and organic way, but one, accepting that it can be bi-directional. You know, I've been in professional settings where expatriates almost act as if they are sacrificing something in their professional development by accepting an African boss, quote unquote accepting. And no one ever says it that bluntly but like what is exhausting about being in these spaces is that we're seeing we can read the subtext mm. and we have to pretend we can't mm. <laughs> and that's like extremely exhausting so there's the the feel-good story then is that you're sort of like here to offer that mentorship and so you invest in the sort of high potential high promise subset of africans mm. and then you sort of see the way the difference shakes out and you're yeah. like yeah this isn't a commitment to racial justice mm -hmm. and when you see that it's not a commitment to racial justice it's very difficult to know and the core question i'm asking about my career upon returning to kenya is do i have a space in social impact in development and i think it's really sad how many other folks who look like me get to that point where they're like it's not worth it mm. So, I mean, a place like Stanford just like lacks socioeconomic diversity across the board. So I think, you know, like a lot of American first generation or low income students would probably share a lot of the concerns and frustrations mm. we felt here, particularly those students of color who fit into that demographic. All of this seems like a distraction. <laughs> I've spent four yeah. years of my life talking about internal diversity and inclusion instead of the external impact on people living below the um, poverty line of the programs we're trying to deliver and i don't want to do that anymore what i'm passionate about is justice and poverty alleviation i don't want to keep talking to white people about why i have value Ooh, that was a powerful closing from shiro I wanted to highlight two things that I felt came out to me uh, quite clearly. Firstly, we're looking at two brilliant individuals who are going to what is a world-leading institute. And despite that, despite getting these opportunities, they have repeatedly found their experiences, what they get to learn, what is taught to undermine who they are, some elements of what they care about. And certainly, from the organizations they also worked with, undermine their belief in what they can contribute and the spaces for it. And that is just desperately sad. 
Like, if we've created such a world where individuals like Sheer and Pussy can't even um, have the right space to channel the change that they could create, it's pretty damning, I think, about this development space. And the second part is what we're seeing in response to these systems and structures is the building and creation of spaces by Africans for Africans. And whilst much of this podcast is not very positive in his portrayal, I think that's really great to see and to listeners um, should give them some hope as to what they can do and where they can find spaces that will nurture and celebrate them as deserved to create the changes they want to see. And with that, I'm going to close this first part of the episode. The second part will be released in the coming weeks. And in that, we discuss further how Puti and Shiro balance their own moral dilemmas about fighting these injustices, coping with black tax, and just getting on with their own lives. Till then, please consider rating us on iTunes or Spotify and share this episode. This podcast only grows through your support and word of mouth. Thanks. Sit down and